0: Hey Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Hello everyone and welcome to another fabulous episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast and ours too. I am your co-host TJ West.
1: And I'm Bridget Keyes. Hello.
0: And this week we are talking about Murder at the Oasis. We are coming up on the finale of this season but we'll talk about this one first before we get there. So as is per usual uh, Jessica is jetting off to somewhere else the, this time to the sandy dunes of California. Yes is that that's correct right California?
1: Well, they never actually specify. I mean, it's obviously supposed to be Palm Springs, but they call it. It's called Desert Palms, Uh, so it's like a sort of fictional version of Palm Springs.
0: Right. So there, she's reuniting with her old friend, of course, played by Piper Laurie, and she also meets up with Piper's um, ex-husband Johnny. unofficial I guess uh, Rat Pack stand-in who is murdered and so Jessica of course has to figure out just who it was who was responsible whether it was one of his children whether it was her friend whether it was someone else and as it turns out it was basically a hit put out on him (laughs) so very exciting stuff here on the uh on the murder she wrote for this week so Bridget what did you think of this week's episode
1: Yeah, you know, I I've seen this episode several times and on the surface, it's just sort of a cozy little domestic mystery that uh, has this like twist at the end, you know, so Johnny Shannon, our victim, uh, is a tyrant. You know, within two seconds of the episode starting, he's screaming at someone and angry. And we're like, based on all of the analysis of episodes you and I have done this season, you know, within two seconds, it's like, gosh, I wonder who's
0: going to get murdered, right? (laughs) Like, there's a rich guy and he's yelling at people. His own son, no less, emasculating him, like, just relentlessly about his lack of musical talent.
1: Yeah, so he has all this issue with his son and then... In a a couple of scenes later, we see his daughter taunting him by dating this guy that he doesn't like, who also, by the way, is a horrible guy and has a temper
0: and a very terrible overactor, quite frankly.
1: <laughs> and so, you know, I think and and it has, it has an ex-wife, um, so it's it's really clear on the surface that there's all of this sort of family trauma and trouble brewing. Um, that makes it seem like probably his murder has something to do with some kind of domestic dispute, right? But what I like about this episode is that actually underneath that sort of traditional cozy surface is this whole plot about the mafia. We never actually see any mobsters.
0: Right. Right
1: right we're just told over and over there's this guy named Milo Valentine who kind of runs the entertainment business and that gave,
0: gave Johnny a start yeah
1: he's responsible for Johnny's career and that he probably is not happy that Johnny is resisting what he's telling him to do so it's like a whole unseen side plot you know that ultimately is the solution to the murder
0: right and never actually i mean cuz the solution of course is that the police uh, detective is in fact a hitman hired by valentine he was the one who executes johnny but it's never i mean as far as i could tell like it was really ambiguous as to why i mean because we know that johnny has been like videotaping people because he has this camera in his office and so it's presumed that he was going to like blackmail or do something to valentine because of valentine's influence over politicians but that's mainly just speculation and not actually stated and so it's not actually said aloud
1: it's Jessica's speculation based on what she knows about the cameras. Yeah, we never actually get to see the tape. We never actually get to hear what that conversation was because again, we never see Milo Valentine. So it's really there's a lot of conjecture. There's so much happening off the page and off the screen here.
0: Mhm. I rewatched this episode. So I watched it once several weeks ago and then I rewatched it and I actually the first time I was, around, I was like, eh, I agree with you." I was like, this is fine. It's bread and butter murder, she wrote. But the more I, when I watched it again last night, I was like, "What a delicious like family melodrama this ends up being!" Like, and of course, as you say, with the the mob stuff lurking in the background, so it actually ends up being quite a layered confection, if you will.
1: Layered is a good way to describe it. And I think you haven't mentioned. Um, so Ken Howard plays Sergeant Barnes, who is our ultimately our killer. Um, but what you haven't mentioned is that Joey Bishop the former Rat Pack member, is the one who plays Johnny's sort of personal assistant aide, I'm not Mm. really sure what his title is, Buster. Um, And so there's a way that the episode, this whole side narrative about the mob, is actually just like an allegory for the Rat Pack itself. Mm -hmm. And then we have Bishop, you know, standing in and playing essentially what his role was with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. I mean, it's so fun if you think of it through that lens.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was doing a little bit of poking around about reviews. Cause I'm always curious, like what the fans are thinking. And I, someone said something to the effect of they should give like they should have given Frank Sinatra, like writing credit on this episode. Cause it's such a clear <laughs> analog to his own life and career. And I was like, yeah, I think that once, once I read that, I, it really sort of helped bring the episode into more sharp focus than I'd had the first time around. Cause I think I probably knew on some level you know, you have a musician who's obviously connected with the mob, obviously you think Sinatra, especially in the 80s. But I guess I didn't put all the pieces together until someone actually said it, and I had read that on the fan forum.
1: Well, so we should talk about that a little bit for people who don't know the background into the Rat Pack and Frank Sinatra's connections with the mob. So the Rat Pack, right, Um, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, and then Joey Bishop, who eventually kind of leaves um, doing the work with them like at the Sands, where they were doing those famous shows, and he has his own TV career. He has two shows that are called The Joey Bishop Show. So he's, I mean, he's a really successful working actor. He was uh, the comedian of the group.
0: Oh, how fun. Because oh, then he's always, he has the moments when it was Jessica, he's like, I can't tell a joke, like none of my punchlines land. Like, which I, I didn't get that reference. So this is why I love your part on the show, because you always help add this layer that I don't always see.
1: Yeah, I think that um, this is an example of the way that the show hits different audiences, because mm-hmm. you can absolutely watch and appreciate it. Um, if in, And certainly I did as a kid. But I think for my parents who knew the history of the Rat Pack, they would have seen all of these other layers, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so there's all this fun with the fact that, like, Buster is like, I'm not funny. I can't tell a joke, you know. And then Jessica asked him to repeat something, and he's like, first time in my life anybody's asked for an encore, which, of course, is, you know, funny because it's Joey Bishop, and he got a lot of encores. Mm-hmm. So um, Sinatra was, uh, this is fact, right? Sinatra was watched by the FBI for, like, 40-plus years, uh, and even at certain points, like, knew what the FBI, what information the FBI was collecting on him. Where things sort of vary is in different interviews and different biographies um, say he had a different relationship to that fact. Like some say that he really flaunted his relationships with mobsters. Like um, he was really good friends with Sam Giancana, the Chicago mobster. Um, And then also some Detroiters. So shout out to my Detroit. Some say he really flaunted those relationships and was like, look, these are my friends. It doesn't mean that I do what they do. And it doesn't mean that I'm one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Other accounts say that he really felt that people who associated them, it was just anti-Italian racism. And that because his last name ended in an A, you know, and was obviously Italian, that people assumed he was also mafia and that he really hated those connections. So it seems like there's a little bit of a different, and I'm not a Sinatra biographer, so I don't really know. But it seems like among interviews and biographies, it kind of goes back and forth as to how he felt about that. But it was fact that he was friends with those people. There's documented evidence. The FBI was following him for years and years and years to see if he was actually up to no good like they
0: were. And it's interesting then, given the, as you say, the Italian context, that in this case, Johnny is Irish. I mean, very transparently so. like Johnny I mean, Shannon. You, don't get, you <laughs> don't get much more Irish than, and I, I think there's a few moments where there's like a, a can sense of brogue just very ever so faintly in the performance. And so that, you know, it's interesting that they chose to make him Irish, obviously the other sort of ethnicity that occupied a vexed, like, history in terms of its whiteness in U.S. culture, like mm-hmm. both, particularly throughout the early 20th century, both Italians And Irish folk were sort of just beyond the pale of what was considered, you know, appropriately white. So, Mm -hmm. just I think that's a really interesting thing, and I I can't help but think it's deliberate that they chose the other quasi-white ethnicity to make this particular character, and also has the Catholic connection too.
1: Joey Bishop himself never really had—he wasn't, like, suspected of having such innate ties to the mob as the other guys in the Rat Pack. Uh, So I think there's something interesting there in that fact that he plays Buster, right? And so he's adjacent to Johnny Shannon. Johnny Shannon is the big star, and he's the sidekick. Bishop mm-hmm. himself was always kind of sour in interviews that he was never quite as famous as Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra. Um, I read this like wonderful interview with him, Teach, where he's like mm-hmm. um, he's asking. He's t- he, he made the interviewer like sit in his house for like four hours and watch old videotapes with him. <laughs> he's like (laughs) he's like do you see do you see how I told that joke do you see how uh, do you see how like clever that is can you write that down like did you see how funny I am right there amazing right and then um he was though friends with somebody who went to prison for tax evasion and also was on trial for murdering a hitman and Bishop actually was called as a witness to testify at the guy's trial so he had that connection.
0: Wow. So it's interesting then that he, you know, forces the the interviewer to watch all those videotapes, given that Johnny himself, the character, has so many videotapes of both himself as, you know, as a star, because at one point his daughter's watching them and it doesn't, she says something to the effect of, I don't recognize the man there because he's become this kind of egomaniacal monster, <laughs> like lascivious monster. Uh, so it's just, an, it's an interesting parallel that's being drawn there, whether deliberate or not is beside the point, but it's just an interesting moment where, real where art imitates life
1: i think johnny's collection of videotapes is really compelling too in the well we've talked about this for a couple of episodes now the the sort of um increasing surveillance culture that began in the 80s the idea that you could have video cameras and you could have videotapes and this was this was technology that was really accessible for the everyday person obviously shannon is rich but you know what i mean that he so when we when we see his den i mean there's a tv and above it is just a line of videotapes and uh, we're told that he videotapes pretty much everything and he has a camera above his pool table as tj was saying and so he used to videotape his pool games to improve which is possibly how he accidentally taped milo valentine resulting in his untimely murder
0: Mm-hmm. but it's
1: there's something really fascinating being said here about like that sur- n- self obsession definitely like i'm with you on that like a narcissism right like why mm-hmm. do you want so many tapes of yourself and then you watch them but also something about like the increasing surveillance culture that gets us to where we live now where like everybody is surveilled all the time mm-hmm. i think we can see this as like a start of that right in the videotape era
0: Right. And it's, I mean, as we've already pointed out, it's so ubiquitous in this first season of Murder, She Wrote, like it happens in the episode with, uh, with the dog, you know, Cause yes. that's the whole, uh, what helps to solve the crime. And it's just, yes, you say, it's really fascinating that the within Murder, She Wrote, we see the sort of sediment of of this moment of historical technological change, like it's kind of like a, a fossil record, I guess, maybe that's how we could think about it.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned It's a Dog's Life, because I was thinking about that episode, too, because, you know, in that episode, um, there's the whole thing about the dog enters the security room and the dog is trained to push a button to open the gates and let people in. Uh, And in this one, we're told, again, there's so much happening not on screen, right? Mm -hmm. We're told that Johnny Shannon's daughter, Terry, who's played by Linda Pearl... um, That she turns off the alarm to let her lovers in and then turns it off again to let them out so that um, the security guards will never know that she has people coming and going from the house and that that's probably how the killer slipped in, right? Mm -hmm. They followed her lover in which again, we never saw. we were just trusting Jessica that all of this conjecture is true. Mm -hmm. But it it was interesting to me that yet again, we're going, the writers went to that place of like, oh, the murder must have something to do with this really complicated alarm system and someone knowing how to manipulate it, right?
0: Mm -hmm. And that the daughter might suddenly have something to do with it, given that this is basically like, written on the wind. Like, that's what I was just sitting here thinking as we're talking about these characters. It's like, if you haven't, Watched written on the wind. It's a Douglas Cerf melodrama from the fifties about a rich family with a daughter who's too lascivious and a son who's kind of like emasculated and a father who's utterly ineffectual. Um, not obviously not a direct parallel, but it strikes me that like, as I said earlier, this episode is, is drawing very much on that, that deep rooted melodramatic storylines that I think many audiences would have been, at least adult audiences would have been familiar with.
1: You know, I think that's part of why um, I struggle to understand Jessica's relationship to this family. Mm -hmm. So as you said in the beginning, Peggy is Johnny's ex-wife. Peggy, played by Piper Laurie, was like Jessica's college roommate or college friend. In the first scene we see them together, they're joking about like the terrible food they used to eat in the dorms. Um, So we understand they have this long history. And I know that people grow and change over time, like especially since college, right? But Jessica still seems to really care about her. Mm Mm-hmm. And to care about the kids, even though she hasn't seen them in a while. Um, but, like, the first thing Terry says is, like, oh, I got one of your books, but I haven't read it yet. Which mm-hmm. is a really rude thing to say to someone who's, like, your mom's close friend. Right. You know, Johnny is a horrible, horrible person. Like, very evidently, you know. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't know his mom connections. Uh, and yet He's Jessica's, a bully and a
0: tyrant. Like.
1: Yeah, and abu- he's abusive, right? And Jessica is very gracious to him and... She's like, oh, Peggy, you were actually rekindling your romance with him. Okay, great, whatever. It's just very odd to me that Jessica is connected with this I would be like, you guys are horrible, and I am running away from you. Right. And if I knew you had mob connections, I would run even farther.
0: Right, because she even says as much. I mean, like, cause when she goes to dinner with Pe- or lunch with Peggy at some point, she mentions, like, the, the mob. She's like, oh, yeah, he's a gangster. And I was just like, like, you're just going to throw out that this person is a gangster and then not do anything? Like, <laughs> come on, Jess. Come on, JB. Yeah. Like, you know, have some self preservation. Yeah.
1: Maybe that explains this other scene that I sort of struggle with, which is um, after Johnny is murdered and Jessica's at the house with Sergeant Barnes and they're sort of trying to, you know, figure out how they're going to investigate. Um, There's that cute scene where he's like, oh, I've read your books, but you don't always get it right. And she's like, what do you mean I don't always get it right? And she's clearly, like, wounded by this. And they start bickering. And there's, like, the cutesy murder-she-wrote music playing. And um, we're obviously supposed to play this for laughs. But, like, for me, it was really horrifying because I'm like, you're, the, the, the ex-wife and the son are, like, literally in the room with the dead body. <laughs> of their beloved family member while you're, like, joking around about your books not being accurate. It just seems really insensitive, but I guess maybe if we think, like, actually nobody liked Johnny and he was a horrible person and maybe Jessica doesn't like this family that much, then maybe that scene isn't so weird.
0: Yeah, I think that's, I think there there is a tonal strangeness to that. That's in sharp juxtaposition to say when Peggy and Jessica are driving to Johnny's house and, you know, Piper Laurie, who I think deserves a great deal of credit for doing a lot with a role that there's not much to do with, says to something to the effect, I'm not even a widow because obviously she's having been divorced from Johnny for so long. She feels, you know, this deep kind of emotional loss that she can't quite, she doesn't have the kind of social function that she feels like. She should because they've been divorced. So she often occupies this strange liminal space in terms of what relationship she has with this dead man, which I thought was, a you know, a grace note, perhaps that is not fully elaborated upon, but I thought was nevertheless quite touching in its own way.
1: This is the part of our podcast where TJ says grace note and thinks he's sneaking it in and I'm not going to notice. But he has set this up as a challenge for himself now to say it in every single episode. And he has not yet failed. And we only have one episode left of this season. I'm confident he's going to meet
0: his goal. I already know what I'm going to (laughs) say for next week's episode. But anyway, and I also, I did love Ken Howard as the detective slash, as Detective Barnes slash whatever his actual name is. We never, we never learned what his real name is. Yeah, which is itself unsettling. Uh, But he has a kind of suave, what do I want to say? A suave barely contained violence like he comes across as someone who's like very you know gentlemanly that deep voice that you know very tall frame like he towers over Jessica and it's just i don't know there's something really compelling about him
1: but he's also he's also very good mm-hmm. looking and he has he's very fair in complexion and he seems put together uh, not like a loose kid and like Johnny, right? right? I think contained is such a great word to describe him. Mm-hmm. And then there's something so sinister lurking underneath, right?
0: Yeah, because he delivers that line. He's like, now you've got the grand prize, I think is what he says when she ca- confronts him with the truth. Which, of course, in True Murder, She Wrote Fashion, it's a, an offhand comment from um, uh, Bishop. Buster. Yeah, yeah for, when they're having that conversation about comedy, and he says, you know, I get the picture. And then it dawns on Jessica that Barnes had mentioned a photo of what was in the picture that was missing in Johnny's office. And then she's like, you couldn't have known that unless you were there
1: you had seen the picture before it was taken off the wall which means this wasn't the first time you were at the house which means this is kind of a leap right which means you must have been the person to come over to the house and kill him right. before the picture was taken down
0: but you know in true like murder mystery fashion once the killer is confronted with the inescapable evidence of their presence they crumple immediately of course in his case he pulls a gun and is going to shoot her and then she basically causes bluff because then she has everyone else in the house come in as well i don't know that whole scene though, which is like wow jessica you i don't really- believe this though i
1: i i really Really, this was weird to me. So, like, him pulling the gun to kill her, and she, he's like, oh, the, there's been a whole thing throughout this, too, about whether there was a silencer, and she's really right. excited about this. She's like, really, as a mystery writer, like, ooh, that's what a silencer looks like, as he's, like, about to use it on her. <laughs> but then he, like, you know, she summons, as TJ said, like, everyone else comes in because they've all been listening because it was a setup. And the part that was weird to me is, like, this is a career hitman. He's in the mob, and he's like, oh, you got me. And he hands over his gun. <laughs> I'm not, I just, I just have really, I, what, he's terrible at it. I'm just going to go ahead and say he's terrible at his job then as a hitman and right. a mafioso because he's caught way too easily and gives up way too easily.
0: I mean, and perhaps I'm just naive, but I'm just like, in what way does a a mob hipster, a mob hitman in, like get hired into the police department without anyone raising an eyebrow
1: well that's a really good question so we're told that he jessica did research on him and found out that he recently relocated to this fictional community desert Palms, from chicago uh and of course chicago must be the mob right
0: Mm-hmm.
1: i am offended on behalf of chicago
0: i mean that's what i always assume when i hear chicago I,
1: Chica- that is no that is not what you should think about when you think about chicago so because he's recently relocated, uh, she's like, OK, he must be this hitman. But I think we're supposed to understand that, like, there's nobody else to help him investigate the murder, which is why Jessica's helping, because it's such a small town and there's it's really affluent. There's no real police force because there's no real crime. Right. So maybe we're supposed to think that, like, they don't there's nobody to do background checks because it's such a, like, safe, rich community.
0: I don't know. Because when Johnny, like, first meets him, he's like, you'll learn how things are done around here. Implying, of course, that Johnny is the law in this particular locale. So maybe, like, as you say, it seems a bit of a stretch to think that nobody would have been like, hey, maybe we should see what the background of this very significant law enforcement officer
1: is. Well, presumably he's using a fake name and I'm I'm sure he had, like, fake credentials, right? Yeah. This is the 80s, though. It's not like they're going to, like, do a DNA check and, like...
0: That's true. Google him. I don't, you know... I mean, it was a nice turn, and I, I appreciated that part of it. I guess it's one of those moments where, if you put too much pressure on it, it doesn't always hold up yeah, quite as
1: yeah, well. Yeah, I just am more wounded by the fact that the writer thought it was reasonable for him to take his gun, flip it over, and just hand it to Jessica. Like, oh, you got me.
0: Yeah,
1: a career, a career criminal, a career hitman.
0: Yeah,
1: So oh, you got me. Take my gun, arrest me. <laughs> no big deal yeah
0: i mean it does help that certainly when they come in they all have like their own weapons but it's even so i'm just like you're just gonna let them take you like that's that what's I, you know i don't know that's just i'm just this is why i'm saying he sucks at his job he's like, he should go Clearly. at least go down with the ship you know what i'm saying like
1: that's what i'm he's saying he's obviously gonna yeah. flip
0: i mean i can't imagine he's not gonna flip on valentine you know he's not gonna say oh yeah i just did it of my own volition
1: Maybe, okay, okay, okay. See, look at us at, we're like fanficking this episode now. Maybe that's why he gave in so easily because he's like, oh, wait, they got me. I know what I'll do. I'll turn state's evidence and then I'll
0: be fine. That's a good, yeah. I mean, that's probably the most generous explanation as to his behavior.
1: I, I somehow, I don't think the writers, you know, spent as much time like agonizing over this like we did. Maybe they did. Uh, no offense intended
0: to the writers. It's like, we got 24 episodes, right? We don't have time to like overanalyze the penultimate lead up to the lead up to the finale. We just don't have time for that.
1: Yeah, I think in the fanfic version though, that's definitely the epilogue though. It was the only epilogue that would make sense. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. like him handing over the gun is just insane.
0: I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe Detective Barnes has his own story. Like that's the fanfic is we could get his side of the story. Like what what torturous road (laughs) led him to assassinating a popular musician. And mob figure, like, what was, what's his backstory? I mean, come on now, it's Ken Howard. Like, he needs a backstory.
1: Why does Ken Howard need a backstory?
0: I don't know, because, you know, because we not talk about he's brooding and male and vital. I don't know.
1: This is his first of six episodes of Murder, She Wrote, uh, and that contained brooding Lurking, sinister beneath the surface stuff is totally gonna come back in the future episodes, right? Like to the point where when I see Ken Howard now, I'm like, bad guy, bad guy, bad guy.
0: You know, he in real life. This is a little tidbit for our listeners. He was the president of SAG and then SAG AFRA right before he died. He was actually he was he yeah. was president before he passed away or when he passed away, I should say which i thought was kind of Union cool. strong
1: union proud yeah
0: i thought that was kind of cool i mean because when i heard that i was like oh, i because i mean obviously there's also a golden girls connection because there's always a golden girls connection he plays one of <laughs> blanche's bows in the final season who doesn't sleep with her because he looks at her as a lady and wants to have an old-fashioned romance so in that case he's which not a guy. which seems
1: really nice but it's also sort of anti-feminist in a way in its own way right
0: well, I mean, that's in keeping with Blanche, though. Like, her fe- her, her feminism is complicated. I know.
1: Yeah, that's a whole other podcast, but...
0: That is a whole other podcast.
1: I always struggle with that episode because I'm so familiar with all of his Murder, She Wrote episodes. Mm-hmm. And I'm always waiting, like, he, this guy that Blanche is dating can't be this nice, right? There must be something bad that he's about to do because he's Ken Howard. And I've seen right. him in Murder, She Wrote six times.
0: And I mean, in between him and Piper Laurie, they sort of are the best things, I think, as far as guest stars go about this episode. Like, Johnny's in their... F- what? Do you don't agree?
1: I'm making a face, you guys, because I don't agree. But I want to hear your argument, and then I'll make mine.
0: Well, no. I mean, you know, I think that in their own ways, each of them do so much with so little. Like, obviously, there's not... A, as, as we were just saying, there's not a lot of development to, to Barnes' character. He's just a hitman and a discussion. But because of the like the screen charisma that Barnes has it gives that role a, a heft that I don't think it would otherwise have. And the same is true of Piper Laurie, who I don't know why I love Piper Laurie so much. I've seen her in a number of things. She was in, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Appointment with Death. She which was. is uh, uh, one of the Ustinov Poirot's, yeah. And, where she actually plays, a domineer, she plays the domineering tyrant in that particular movie. Um, but she also the first time I saw her was actually in Will and Grace, where she plays the best friend of Will and Grace's old teacher, played by Orson Beam. It's a whole thing. So I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm a homo and I love food. like I love stars of her particular caliber. I also think she reminds me a lot of Debbie Reynolds for some reason. She does, yeah. I've always thought that. And so maybe I'm just I'm drawn to her performance. It's her
1: complexion. It's the strawberry blonde hair and the fair complexion, I think, and then the
0: fact that she's short and the china doll face you know mm-hmm. sort of contributes yeah. i think to the to that impression and so that's why maybe i'm just drawn to those two in particular as being the highlights certainly the children are not entities. so i'm not even going to speak about them but um but i feel like you'll disagree
1: so I disagree with that because I think there is so much happening with the other people. Um, we I'll leave Mickey out of this Johnny's son. Um, he has a long storied career in TV too, but um, Linda Pearl plays Johnny's daughter, Terry, and Linda Pearl it, will be in another episode of Murder, She Wrote. Um, she, at this point, is probably best known for playing Fonzie's girlfriend on Happy Days, um, but she continues on to have a really long career. And what I think is interesting about this episode is that she spends most of the episode in a strapless backless dress that comes down alarmingly low in the front um, and so and, and strappy heels and this like kind of exact wardrobe is echoed in her next episode of Murder, She Wrote where she's also in like a backless strapless dress um, which is showing tons of skin and being this sort of like seemingly sweet but actually vamp villain you know it's like the same character right um, and then you know obviously Joey mm. Bishop is huge to the episode and we've talked about him a bit and um, Ed Ames is the one who played Johnny and he was probably best known for playing um Mingo, who's a Cherokee Man on the Daniel Boone series with Fess Parker.
0: Oh wow. That's a deep cut right there.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, I think, you know, there's a lot happening with all of these other actors. And and Piper Laurie, of course, a classical Hollywood star who maybe it's probably unfair to call her that because she continues to have like a really important career after the classical Hollywood age. But as TJ is saying, you know, I think she and Joey Bishop probably have these connections to Lansbury in the past, um, just from having been actors for so long.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I will concede that you are right. I'm just saying that those are the two stars that I found most appealing. Not to, not to underestimate or devalue the contributions of the other members of the cast who, as you have rightly pointed out, have their own lovely and very extensive filmographies.
1: I There's a scene where Johnny and Buster, it's at the beginning of the episode and they're in a limo and it's the first time that Valentine calls mm. um, and they're telling jokes and laughing, but it's it's like such inside material. You have to like... The stripper had a duck. You have to like totally... There's You have to assume there's
0: like a whole thing that's
1: going on that we don't know about.
0: I actually was going to mention that. I'm glad you brought that up because I forgot. I actually think... And I, I would have to look to make sure, but I have a feeling that that's actually a classical allusion to like antiquity because the Empress Theodora of Byzantium was known for being an actress before she became Empress and she would perform on stage with a goose in the form of, or, or a swan, in the myth of Leda and the swan. And of course, in Byzantium and Constantinople of that period, to be an actress was assumed to be a prostitute or a stripper. So she would perform the myth of Leda and the swan, which was used seducing Leda in the form of a swan on stage, supposedly.
1: Wow, that's another deep cut. Man. So I'm,
0: I was, as soon as I rewatched it, I was like, that I can't help but think that's it's somewhat of an allusion to Theodora like I, I, I mm. because it's just so random I can't imagine that it's it was just, really
1: random yeah
0: like it yeah. came out of nowhere but I just had a feeling that that's what they were alluding to
1: but it, and it's told in this way where it's you know we're, we're not given the whole joke we're just sort of given the punchline and we see these two guys laughing and so it's really clear that like Buster adores Johnny in a way because he's like cracking up which is also again I think funny because it's he Joey Bishop is not the one telling the jokes right um and this is a scene when valentine calls and that's how we first learn about um johnny's connection to valentine and he says i don't i'm not going to talk to him tell him mm. i'm not available and um buster says oh he just stepped out but it's a car phone <laughs> it's like uh, yeah he's totally gonna believe he just stepped out um but the reason i mentioned this scene teach is because um the cinematography did you notice it
0: a little bit like but what specifically
1: well, the camera is a low-angle shot mm-hmm. from the floor of the car shooting up at them, but Buster's legs are wide apart, and the camera is sort of placed so that it's it's shining directly at his crotch. It's just the worst possible camera angle, and I don't understand who thought this was okay and how this made the final episode cut.
0: That is a very good question, because it doesn't seem necessarily like what one would expect from a family show. I <laughs> know.
1: No, it's really bizarre. It's totally bizarre. Anyway.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, that seems like a good place to stop. So as always, we want to express our heartfelt gratitude to all of our listeners for tuning in to us every week. We truly appreciate everyone who takes the time and we especially appreciate those of you who have rated us on Apple. So for the Cabot Code Gazette, I am TJ West. And I'm Bridget Keys, And we will see you next week. The Cabot Cove
1: Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Common License. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook
0: and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.